Welcome to Bicycle Retail Radio, the bicycle industry podcast that brings retailers, vendors, advocates, and thought leaders to the mic for honest discussions about the latest issues facing retailers while taking an in-depth look at the person within the profession. Welcome listeners to Bicycle Retail Radio. This is NBDA President Heather Mason. This is the MBDA News Hour, co-hosted with our friends from Human Powered Solutions. Before we jump into today's conversation, I want to put a reminder out of the amazing things that are happening at the National Bicycle Dealers Association. We have in the coming months our annual holiday auction, launch of our 2024 Retailer Summit event to be held in Bentonville, Arkansas. We have our partnership with the CABDA shows and our P2 workshops and educational events that'll be happening there. Head over to the MBDA website, mbda.com. You can see our full event list and calendar, and we do hope that you join us soon. Today, I'm joined by Chad Picard, MBDA board member and P2 moderator. Welcome, Chad. Good morning, Heather. How are you? Awesome. Thanks for being here. So Chad and I are fortunate today to be joined by micro-mobility experts, Jay Townley, Fred Clements, and Mike Fritz. I am a, a big fan of the work of the team at Human Powered Solutions, which has over 245 years of experience. Considered the data wizards, their monthly newsletter, the Micro Mobility Reporter, is a dynamic resource for the industry, featuring timely news and in-depth analysis about the latest in human-powered transportation, including bicycles, e-bicycles, e-scooters, and rideshare. Included is a focus on supply chain issues, technology, and both business and consumer trends that drive the marketplace. Yes, if this is your first time catching up with us in our news hour, we have many multiple episodes on the MBDA YouTube channel. I would highly suggest you go there. You can also find them on whatever platform you stream on. This monthly feature contains articles that are within the Micromobility Report. And what we want to do is get a more in-depth view, an investigative report, if you would, a firsthand seat with the experts. You yourself can sign up to receive the email version of this resource if you go to humanpoweredsolutions.com. Gentlemen, thanks for being here. How's it going? Jay, Mike, Fred, thank you. Good. Well, thank you. Good to be here. Lots to get into today. The title of the October newsletter is Let's Get Loud About E-Bike Fires. I just came back from New York City and at an event with the New York Fire Department. Very insightful. Jay, Mike, Fred, what do we need to know? Well, I'll kick it off. That headline was from the London Fire Brigade. So I think, first of all, there's an international understanding that I'm beginning to get, or at least view I'm beginning to get, that the problem to different degrees, and that tends to be the cheap, low-cost lithium-ion batteries and or, in some cases, the e-bikes themselves that are being imported into the markets of the world, the developed markets of the world, primarily from China. We've talked about this all through New York, but it's certainly in a little different twist is the problem they're running into in London. I've heard similar reports coming from the EU, from Germany, from the Dutch, from Holland. I think it goes to the issue of the world having to take very seriously what we're going to do, take a concerted effort as to what we're going to do in our particular case to deal with the de minimis rule or anything that allows an uncertified, untested lithium-ion battery and or e-bike product to be entered into a marketplace without being looked at, inspected, and to assure that it's got the proper, in this case, 
for the U.S. UL 2849 markings on it. If I could add to that, Jay, you mentioned uh, reports coming in from some international markets. We're also seeing a lot more in domestic USA. Uh, I see regular reports about fires in Portland, Oregon, Denver, any number of different markets where e-bike proliferation is underway, again, relating to these these uncertified battery packs that are coming in. Not only does it speak to a need for de minimis reform, it also speaks to the need for mandatory regulations. We know how to make a good lithium-ion battery. The technology exists. You can't short-circuit key elements of, of the design or production of those battery packs or else they're ticking time bombs. And, and certification to appropriate standards, which currently exist by regulatory agencies, I think is critical. And I think that's the direction that we're heading. The unfortunate part of that, though, is that there's a lot of those battery packs in the country. And we're not going to see an end to this situation for quite some time until those either wear out and get recycled or burn up and damage or injure people. Yeah, Mike, as you say, you know, the certification we are hearing every day, I feel that another brand has gotten indeed certified. I think the recent one I saw was Bird, but we are seeing tragedies. We just saw a storage facility in New York City catch up in flames. And today in the news, residents in Long Island are concerned about a possible lithium-ion storage facility going in there. So it's definitely something we're all keeping our pulse on. When we were at that event in New York City, we were able to meet with Charlie McCorgle from Bicycle Habitat and get his firsthand take on the subject. And he not only had concerns on the fire safety, but also additional concerns, right, Chad? Yeah. So this goes into a piece that we're not just talking about the fires, but when it comes to safety, we're talking about, you know, riders striking pedestrians or other items while on e-bikes. There's an article about Fayetteville considering new rules and regs for e-bikes. And these are new customers on a new thing, but even younger kids having troubles in the streets. What do we need to know about that? Well, I think that goes overall with the issue that the American bicycle industry and business, I think, has to get back to fundamental safety. And that includes a number of aspects of safety, lithium-ion batteries and the fires that the low-cost products are creating is one of them. But this highlights, Chad, another aspect that League of American Bicyclists and the NBDA have been, I think, quite involved in and quite vocal about. And it goes back to regulation in that there are in the market electric bicycle products that can exceed 20 miles an hour. And it can be done through the software that's already in the instruments that are on the products. So consumers are either given instructions and information as to how to exceed the 20 mile an hour, which is at this point what the federal government recognizes. The United States Consumer Product Safety Commission and the definition of a bicycle includes a bicycle that is equipped with a 750 watt motor that will not exceed 20 miles an hour when propelled forward by that motor alone. So that takes into, from a use standpoint, it takes into two of the three classes of product that the uh, People for Bikes organization has laid out as the class system for use. And so what we're seeing on the streets are products that can exceed 20 miles an hour and in turn just the enthusiasm of youth. I mean, I can... Even though I don't look like it, when I was a kid riding a bicycle, 
I greatly enjoyed taking risks with my bike. I know that in watching what BMX developed into and seeing at its very beginnings, exactly what BMX riders did. And Chad, I know you had experience with this as well. And then mountain bikers and all of the the things that go with that. This, however, is excessive, what I consider excessive speeds at 28 or more, 30 miles an hour on bike paths, on bikeways, with walkers, on streets, with senior citizens, with folks that are vulnerable and young people and riders in general not taking into account that an electric bike that exceeds the 20 miles an hour is going to put them into a situation where they could be a hazard to consumers and to people, pedestrians walking on the streets. This opens up a whole topic that I know Mike and I have talked about, and Mike and I just had a conversation this morning about it, and that is from a human-powered solutions standpoint, Mike in particular, as our chief technology officer, talking about what the industry has developed and is adopting relative to the electronics you can put on board an e-bike to not only maintain the speed, but also warn the operator of an electric bike about pedestrians in their pathway, pedestrians that are around a corner, automobiles that could be of danger to them or vehicles. So there's a whole issue, Chad, that goes with safety that we need to look at and embrace. It goes well beyond what we talked about lithium-ion bike fires. Yeah, definitely. Staying on e-bikes, the articles on Pond Holdings expanding at e-bike leasing and RAD announcing a U.S. lineup looks like the focus is on continued growth of the category. Fred, how important do you think e-bikes are for the retail market? It's the growth category now. As I was thinking about this question, I recall back to the 80s, and Jay just mentioned the BMX market, but I, I think of the creation and entrance into the marketplace of the mountain bike, that it was the new thing, and there was reluctance. The world wasn't ready for it. We didn't even have off-road open to bicycles. It wasn't created by the industry. It was created by young people, consumers who wanted to do it. I think that's the case in BMX also. But I think that's where we are with e-bikes in a obviously a different context, but it's the growth category that mountain bikes was with a whole different set of challenges. And obviously we have buyers with lithium ion batteries. But to the previous question, as Mike has said before, solid state batteries are around the corner three to five years from now. I, I saw Ford is even announcing their cars are going to have non-lithium ion rechargeable battery power in a, in a few years. So within five years, the fire issue should be history. What's going to remain is the rider behavior and safety issue, you know, and, and certainly it's high speeds and de minimis and all of that. I still see a lot of kids wrong way on streets. Basic bicycle 1A is still not out there in the world. And the more we get more e-bikes and people on bikes, I think that's our long-term challenge is to make sure people know what they're doing. And that's where I am on that. Yeah, there's so much to this topic. Any direction we look down, whether it comes to the rider education and safety, places to ride the bike safely, lithium-ion battery, the insurance issue. I mean, there's so many different directions we could go with that conversation. I do know that the industry is taking this seriously right now. We have our NBDA e-bike safety forum panel that we have representatives from many of the top companies taking part in that 
We also just got back from Shift 23, the People for Bikes e-bike event. Commissioner Boyle was there with several others commenting on the future of e-bikes. Jay, I know you were there as well with us. Takeaways from the event, anything that those who weren't able to attend might want to know firsthand from this side? Yeah, I think you'll agree that the keynote speaker on the first day, Commissioner Boyle, was the focal point. And the two takeaways from my standpoint are the attorney for people for bikes, Erica Jones, if I'm correct in her name, was the moderator of what Commissioner Boyle was presenting, but also asked her the questions. So the two of them, I think, made it very clear that coming out of the July 27 meeting at the CPSC headquarters, where the industry was asked to attend and present testimony with experts to the sitting commission, the chairman and all the commissioners, relative to lithium-ion batteries and lithium-ion battery safety, that the summary of that, as repeated by Erica Jones and Commissioner Boyle, was that they were surprised, or at least uh, Erica Jones was, was surprised at the unanimity that the industry agreed that we need mandatory standards. And that was repeated. And I think that's important that there is in the bike industry unanimity that we need to have CPSC move forward as quickly as they can with updated, with current mandatory standards. That also led to a timeline, which was my other takeaway, that Commissioner Boyle made it abundantly clear that CPSC staff is now preparing the documents or the protocol, if you will, for the commissioners to look at as to how they're going to proceed, but that we're talking about a two-year process, that a year from now, we'll see what the commission has made with staff, a decision on what they're going to put into the detail of a mandatory regulation. And again, this is for bicycles as currently defined. That is a pedal-only bike or and or a bicycle that is equipped with a 750-watt motor that can reach 20 miles an hour when powered under that motor solely, so that there will be a regulation that, that encompasses lithium-ion batteries, that encompasses all of the systems or the system itself for propulsion, that will have that forthcoming and promulgated in about two years. So in between, I think the other takeaway, Heather, is clear that it's up to the industry and the NBDA has taken lead in this with its panel, that it's up to the industry to make sure that we are doing everything we possibly can to put in place voluntary standards and clear and understandable standards for both the industry, the manufacturers, the brands, the retailers, everybody that's in the chains of distribution to meet, and for us to educate consumers so consumers can understand what Mm -hmm. is a tested and certified product. What should they look for on that product to give them the assurance that that product has been tested and is certified? So those are my key takeaways from Shift 23. Thank you, Jay. That was a great event. Let's get back to the newsletter. I'm very interested in following the benefits that used bike sales offer our retailers. We talk of this often in our P2 groups and see now that Trek has their Red Barn refresh program. What should we know? I see it as an opportunity for retailers, but not every retailer. It depends on your focus. It would seem a wonderful way to allow trade-ins. The key, of course, is buy low, sell high, and make sure it's not stolen when you acquire a used bike and, and refurbish it for resale. 
But I think there is a booming private marketplace for used bicycles. It only makes sense to me that bike shops would look at an opportunity there just because consumers are demanding it and asking for it. They can save a little money on a high-quality, dealer-quality bicycle. I think it's pretty clear that if you're looking for business opportunities and options, that that would be an avenue to to explore. There are techniques. There are ways to go about it that I think the NBDA has provided some direction on. And I know a fair number of retailers that do this successfully. So who am I to say? But, yeah, do it. (laughs) Well, I would agree. I think that the data uh, that the NBDA has put together, particularly the cost of doing business study, that was recently published, done in 2023, points out very clearly that the highest margin product or product category that uh, especially bike retailers carry is used bikes. If I remember, Heather, the data showed that the average revenue was 50% gross margin, which is the highest revenue producing product category of any category surveyed. It is true. And, you know, for our listeners, the thing that we want to ensure is that we're using the right calculations and formulas when we're taking in used bikes and then making our plan for what we're going to resell them at because we can do it right so it's profitable or we can do it wrong. So, but yes, when done the correct way, profit margins, you know, between 50 or 60 usually is what retailers are seeing, Jay. Well, and I think the fact that Trek came out with the Red Barn program, kudos to them, is absolute proof that used bikes are a high margin category at retail. Yeah. If if I could jump in for a minute, I agree. You know, obviously my focus is on technology. I think the emerging trend in terms of used e-bikes is going to present its own set of challenges vis-a-vis the issues that we've talked about relative to battery quality, battery condition uh, of a used bike that's brought in for a a trade-in or whatever. So, but that's, that's probably a topic for a different conversation, but I think e-bikes are going to put a different spin or at least additional detail relative to good practices on the whole used bike situation. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that, Mike. I had a meeting this morning with Upway, who's been doing quite a lot of work in the e-bike marketplace. And we are talking about European trends and what's coming to the U.S. and used e-bikes. Retailers taking e-bikes on trade-in was a topic of conversation that we will work with Upway to educate retailers on in 2024 and beyond. But then also looking back at the Micromobility Reporter, I saw the article on the Euro pre-owned bike marketplace, Bicycle, which is coming into the U.S. So again, seems that others are noticing that this used bike market is an opportunity. Bicycle, Jay, do we know anything about Bicycle? Is there anything we should be aware of there? Like Upway, this is a European-based company that very much on the model of several of the U.S. companies is providing used bikes and a platform to sell used bikes. I think when we dig into the data and begin to look at what we're going to, in the period between now and through next year, be able to peel back, I think what we're going to see is that while the new bike market was down in 2023, it is, there's no question based on the data. One of the unknowns is we have no idea how many used bikes were sold. And I think we're going to find that used bikes have been an appreciable contributor to the cash flow in the marketplace. And it's not just specialty bike retailers, but in the private marketplace, the individuals. 
as Mike said, you know, there's some concern about standards, meeting standards. I think that'll all work its way through and we'll have to, in the bike shop trade, be particularly vigilant. But yeah, I think the Europeans are seeing, seeing the value of used bikes in the U.S. market and a company like Pro's Closet has been around for a good number of years. We've studied them for decades, but now they're being joined by others in the European scene who are looking to North America as a potential source of new revenue for them because of the broaching of the used bike market. Yeah, there is definitely lots to look at here. And we've seen Pro's Closet, you know, have their kind of changes over the past year or so. Bicycle Blue Market seems to be another spot for us. Definitely something to keep an eye on. Let's flip over. I want to say, can we talk about the economy? I'm saying that kind of with a chuckle. I'm a little bit nervous to get into this one. But there's several articles here. First, we have Rick Vosper's article indicating that we're not in the same industry anymore. We have China's exports fall again. The article, you know, I hate to see about Roll Bicycle filing Chapter 11. Several Target stores are closing. Maybe retail sales are making a small gain in August, but not really enough to indicate we're out of the weeds. I mean, I know there's lots of factors, you know, theft, just inflation, but just looking at the overall economy and potential for our industry over the next couple of months. I mean, maybe I'll start with Fred on this one. Fred, just like, you know, you've been in the industry a long time. You're seeing the situation we're in now. What's kind of your thoughts over the next six to 12 months? Well, I guess from where I sit, the economy is not overall bad. We're not in a recession. It is an election year. And traditionally, we get a bump in election year for whatever reason. It's the off season, of course. And so whatever we do for the next few months, industry-wide, that's not going to tell the tale of 2024. I guess I'm reasonably confident that the economy is going to remain at least stable. And inflation seems to be under greater control. Long ways to go. A lot of wars and disruption globally that does not augur you know good feelings about a great economy but i'm not depressed about it yeah i guess let me put it this way so i have a lot of retailers door swings are down you know this is a great time to start thinking about what we're going to do for any holiday sales or opportunities jay from what you're reading how are the opportunities for the holiday sales looking like should retailers be thinking about a big small business Saturday sale, or should we expect that Christmas sales are going to be, you know, strong? Anything that you could add there, Jay, from what you're reading? Well, at this point, the economy, as Fred said, you know, the numbers that are posted, the third quarter of this year has been an amazing quarter. I mean, there was GDP growth of around 4%. The American consumer underpins that. It's a consumer purchases, consumer demand. What the experts are looking at now as we get into the third quarter is what, Heather, you and the NBDA are going to be exploring and doing consumer research. And that is that the American consumer, along with the European consumer and the and the UK consumer, has changed. And that was part of what both Mark Sani and Rick Vosper were referring to. This is not your father's bike business. It's changed. And Fred and I have talked about this. We're very aware of the fact that the American consumer in their buying habits have over the course of the COVID and then the post-COVID period, 2023, have changed the way they buy and what they buy. 
And we need to be nuanced. We need to be able to ratchet around and, and deal with that, especially bike retailers. I think the research you're going to do is an important piece of this because we have to find out why consumers quit buying certain products, in this case, new bicycles and e-bikes, what it's going to take to bring them back, and when are they going to start buying again? And actually, what are they going to pay for it? Where are they, where are they going to buy it? we got to ask a lot of questions. However, for the immediate short term, bike shops need to look carefully at a budget. They need to look carefully at their planning documents. If they've got available the wherewithal, the money to spend, then they need to think about the promotions and the sales they run. I don't think they do anything traditional. I think they look at everything from the standpoint of what can they afford? What's the return? What do they know about their consumers? If need be, call a group of a dozen consumers in and sit down with them and ask, what are you going to buy? What do you need? I think there'll be a great emphasis on service for bike shops. I think, in fact, one of the great strengths, especially bike retail going forward, is going to be the fact that bike shops can offer something that the online people and many of the mass merchants can't offer. And that is the ability to fix the bike, to fix the e-bike, to service it. And so I think, you know, there's an area we talked about used bikes, but this all goes back to we have serviced and we're looking at, made sure this is a good, safe and sound e-bike or used e-bike or used bicycle we're providing to you. And more importantly, we're here. We're going to be here so you can come back and rely on us to provide the after-sales service, to provide the advice to be able to provide the accessories. So I think to answer your question, Heather, I think dealers need to stop, consider what it is that's going to get them the greatest yield in the coming quarter, going into the first quarter of 2024, and also rely on the information that organizations like yours, the NBDA, are going to be able to provide to help give guidance to how they shape their business planning. NBDA Career Center is all about connecting talent with opportunity. Whether you have an opening at your shop or you yourself are a job seeker, we're here to help. For retailers, a listing on careers.nbda.com means you're already speaking to an engaged and industry-ready talent pool. And for those seeking a new role or opportunity, careers.nbda.com is a career center that's made for our industry. Visit nbda.com to learn more today. Yeah. Thank you for that, Jay. You know, the retailers that are in our P2 program, we've been pushing them hard. We get, we give them homework. We ask them to do a cash flow, a budget. We want them to come with an inventory analysis to look at where they're sitting over inventory and categories. We're digging into their service numbers. And it's hard work, but hard work pays off with big results. Chad and I are as both as moderators of the P2 program, really concerned with cash flow, especially when lines of credit seem to be harder to get. Is that what you're seeing to the lines of credit that banks are ex- extending are are not as generous as they once were? They are. And as strange as this sounds, if you follow the economy, what's going on in the economy, bonds, 10-year treasury bonds have, have risen in value. They've got above 5% in yield. The impact of that is it increases interest rates at banks. It increases the cost of lending. And so it costs, money costs more now. We're past the era of cheap money, being able to go as a business person and get a low-cost loan to finance inventory is gone. It's not going to come back. 
So it's going to cost more to finance inventory. It's going to cost more to finance a business. And the other piece that goes with that is banks are now charging more for the services that they are providing. So even to get a loan is going to cost more from a service standpoint. So the cost to a small business in particular of getting money to finance that business has increased. Now, good news, bad news. This is what the Fed wants. Our federal government is in a position where the Federal Reserve is purposely moving forward with a plan to raise the costs in order to dampen down the buying, dampen down the economy that they think is running too hot. The end result of that for small business is it's going to cost more to both get financing. It's going to cost more for all of the services, the things that we need to run a business. And so, especially bike retailer, particularly at the levels we're at, because when you talk about what is small business, the federal government looks at small business as a company that employs 100 people. We're truly small business. And I think our average is probably five or six as far as employees or maybe less. And so consequently, you're right. You know, what you're getting in front of your P2 groups is extremely important, which is look at your situation, look at your payroll, look at all of the things that go into the cost side of your business and take a look at the revenue that you can generate against that cost and make sure you can sustain the business going forward. This would include loans. This would include the cost of money. So while the economy has been good, while the Q3 results are excellent, the cautions that go with it are it's simply going to cost more to be in business and you're going to have to take that into account in your business planning. So with looking at that, we've got retailers, you know, post-COVID, some put away a nest egg. They didn't make any capital improvements or anything like that. And they have that money. Some have it all invested in inventory. Others are barely scraping by. Fred, should retailers be paying for product with cash or taking supplier credit or just putting everything in a can under the third stair and saving it? What's your What are your thoughts on that? I think everyone's situation is different. And I know retailers very successfully that make a point of pride. They, they're not going to take any loans out and they're going to pay off their bills on time. And they run, you know, six stores that way. Now, others, of course, work credit to the max, you know, work the suppliers for deals. That's one thing that's unique about the bike business, I think, is the personality and operating philosophies of the owners can be quite a bit different from each other. And there's no single answer. It depends on the market, depends on the owner, their priorities, and all of that. So I don't know what they should do. You know, clearly during COVID, a lot of money were made by retail. What did they do? Did they take it home? Well, that's their right. Did they invest in the business? Well, that's their right too. I think to the previous comment that Jay made, you know, in the, you know, it's not your father's bicycle business anymore. And as Jay and I have discussed, it kind of is though. Fundamental things about our business have not changed. Now, certainly categories and challenges and COVID and all this stuff, it's radically different in those ways. But Heather, as you were just saying, you know, we're working on cash flow. We're working on inventory management. We're working on when and how to pay your bills. Those are fundamentals. Those have not changed. The supply side hasn't changed very much. We still source our product that, and rely on container ships to get it here. So yes, many things have changed, but the fundamentals, I think, to get out of and to understand the market, talk to consumers, those are basics. That's not a whole new world out there that way. The same tools that are at our disposal, I think, are there for the use. Thanks. Switching it a bit again. 
an article on high-end bike companies offering budget e-bikes was interesting. What's behind this move? The market. And this continues. There will be an article in the November issue that that follows up on that because now the focal point is sub-thousand dollar e-bikes. And from our standpoint, making sure that those are tested and certified. So what you're dealing with here, Chad, is you might recall when e-bikes were in vogue in 2019, the average retail, and I'm guessing at this, but it was certainly a $5,000 product. And, and we were not shocked when we saw nine and $14,000 products. We saw during the COVID D2C, direct to consumer, which was a different set of price points. But you've also seen post COVID all the major brands, the top tier, the top four, all of them taking e bike prices and coming up with a $2,000 or sub $2,000 e bike in the market in their lines sold through their specialty bike retailer authorized dealers. And in some cases, they're going D2C as well. This is all in response to what's happening in the marketplace is the consumer, as I said, has changed buying habits. Consumers are buying differently than they have been in the past. That is differently than post-COVID or pre-COVID, I'm sorry, 2019 and earlier, different than the way they were purchasing during the COVID. And certainly what's emerged in this post-COVID period is a different settling in of the target price points or the sweet spot, if you will, in the specialty bike retail market and the e-bike market in general for the price of an e-bike. That sweet spot's come down appreciably. It is interesting to watch all these new price points and these categories and really good quality bikes. I mean, Chad was just mentioning some high-end bike companies, and I've also seen like other companies like Radio Flyer, known for their little red wagon, has now entered the e-bike cargo market with a really impressive, you know, UL certified bike at a really impressive price point. So definitely something to watch as we continue to see this category grow hopefully in the right direction with safety and advocacy in mind. I want to jump over the article from Bloomberg really caught my eye because we're talking about getting people back on these bikes that they got during COVID, getting people back in our stores, interacting with our retailers. So this article that Bloomberg wrote, it says, despite all the investments and advocacy we've been doing, this whole bike to work theme is just not catching on. You know, bike to work in other countries, definitely like mainstream, definitely a, there's a big movement there, but it's not catching on in the US. What's holding us back? You know, what do you guys think about this? I mean, you covered the article. I'm sure it caught your attention too, right? Yeah. Part of it, I think in the article, they explained and then our work and what we're publishing and putting out in the newsletter. If you dig into it, you've got fewer people working downtown. you got fewer people that need to commute to work. So this whole issue of office space is tied to this. The fact that commuting, and if you look at where has bicycle commuting maintained and grown a bit, is New York City. And so that goes to population. It goes to density. It goes to a lot of things. But where it's dropped off are the other cities around the country in the U.S. And when you look at San Francisco as an example, which in addition to being hilly, also had a very active bicycle commuting culture that has dropped almost to the same percentage point that the office occupancy has dropped off and people are working at home. So if I'm working at home and I'm not commuting into my job downtown, 
I drop out of that piece of the equation out of those stats. I'm no longer commuting to work on a bike. So I think the future is much brighter than what that article necessarily indicates. Mm -hmm. It goes also with this shift in the consumer. Consumers changing the way that they are, it's their whole lifestyle, the way they're spending money, the way they're spending time. In this particular case, you know, you might have a situation where the family's riding the bicycle more, perhaps a cargo bike to take kids to school, but they certainly are not going to check the box or answer the question that I'm riding my bike to work because they're not. They're working at home. If that runs 9, 10, 11% of a population, that's a pretty good chunk of a shift or change. I think to answer your question about the future, I think that goes back to the issue of how safe do we make it? How safe can Everybody in the bicycle world and the bicycle community working together make bicycle riding for recreation, for work, commuting to work safer. And I think that the LAB as an example certainly has answers and is working in the right way. They're trying to get the attention of the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. And that goes into a whole series of topics that Fred and Mike were talking about, and that is how do I bring forward the technology that is now built into automobiles that are made and sold in Europe or made in Asia for the European market? Those same automobiles being sold in the U.S. market, but those features that allow or tell an automobile or vehicular driver there's a cyclist ahead of you are turned off because we are not demanding it because National Highway Traffic Safety Administration isn't requiring that as a rule. So I think the future is quite bright. I think we'll see more people on bikes for many reasons. And I think it's up to the American bicycle business to lead the charge relative to making it safer to do so. So we got articles on cars being safer. You mentioned, you know, some of the like eyesight technology and things like that. With all these things, we do have fatalities on the ride. Is this what's leading people not to ride or are there, are there other things? Is it infrastructure? What are you guys' thoughts on that? Well, I'm hoping that the consumer research will begin to uh, peel back that you guys are doing, will peel back some of that. My personal opinion is that that's a contributor. The fact that LAB has really gone after NHTSA, I mean, we've looked at in in our world with lithium-ion batteries and e-bikes and bicycles, we've been focused on CPSE, Consumer Product Safety Commission. We have to keep going in that direction, but LAB... League of American Bicyclists, who are equally concerned about the use issues, are really trying to rally the whole community to get NHTSA to recognize a number of the safety issues, not the least of which is, at last count, 73% of all the vehicles sold in the U.S., I think this is the last month, were either an SUV, a big van, or a pick-em-up truck, a big vehicles. Big vehicles that are now making it more difficult for that driver to see a cyclist. The greatest incident of both pedestrian and cyclist fatality tends to be when these big vehicles are making left-hand turns or Mm -hmm. when that cyclist is making a left-hand turn. Now, many of those same vehicles under European requirements have built into them electronics that will sense that cyclist or pedestrian out there and let the vehicle driver know it, a signal, a warning, whatever. NHTSA is not requiring that of the safer vehicles in the United States. The vehicle in the U.S. is safer because its crash test shows that it can bump into a wall and vehicular occupants will be safer, will be subject to less injury. 
but it does nothing relative to that vehicle, particularly a bigger vehicle, hitting a pedestrian, hitting a cyclist. And so all of the data and things that go into that are what the League of American Bicyclists is saying, let's get out there, let's get NHTSA to begin to look at bringing the rulemaking up to date with Europe. And then one last point is semi-trucks and trailers. Now, I don't know how many of you have ridden on a roadway with an 18-wheeler lately, but I'm an old tour guide. I spent several years taking groups on rides, and I avoided state highways because they have 55-mile-an-hour speed limits. I also know that even on the shoulder, when one of those 18-wheelers went by me, there was a vacuum created, and it would start to move you in under toward, toward the trailer. And if you look at these trailers today, many of them, Walmart and several others have put side guards, which are there in order to change that dynamic of that ability of those trailers to suck in a rider and and run over them. That is a requirement in Europe, but it is not a requirement in the United States. NHTSA has not made that a requirement for 18-wheel trailers. And you'll find in Europe that all delivery vehicles, lorries as they call them, all of the delivery trailers have to have the side guards. The industry says they can't afford it. In fact, that tends to be a common theme. We can't afford these things. In reality, it's being done in the European market. They can afford it there. So the question is, come on, guys, let's move up. Let's bring ourselves up to current safety standards for the greatest amount of safety that we can provide for the pedestrian and for the e-bike and the regular pedal bike rider. Yeah. Jay, thanks for that really detailed answer. There's so many things here. There's so many pieces. I feel like we can do a lot better job collectively to help grow ridership. Fred, I mean, from where you're sitting, you've been involved in the industry for so long. You know, just thinking about retailers having a hard time getting customers in the door. Maybe it is because we don't have these safe places to ride. Maybe it's because of inflation that bikes are luxury items. Maybe it's because of all the opportunities, all the places to spend money or buy product. If you were a retailer right now, what do you think you might be doing to get customers back in the door? Well, everything you mentioned, but I think outreach, have an active customer outreach within your community. It's great. And I totally support promotion of cycling nationally and you know national numbers about riding to work and all that. It's all important. It's an indicator. But I think the retailer has an opportunity at the local level to plant seeds and to reach out and to basic stuff, organized rides, demos, classes, especially with e-bikes. People are loving e-bikes. Well, get them out on that. I think you have an opportunity to build a market locally that then you and maybe you alone will then benefit from. You can, through advocacy and promotion, create additional consumer interest. And so I think your question about floor traffic, well, I think, you know, the obvious thing is, and I've mentioned this before, you need a door counter because if you're just shooting blind, oh, it seems that traffic is down when it's not, but it just seems like it. Well, you don't want to do magical thinking on something like that. If you actually have hard numbers and you can compare door count versus month to month, year to date, is the number down and then implement some new plan? What can I do? to outreach and see if it affects that number. And then you're talking science. You're talking analysis. You've got some numbers to work with. It's not magical thinking. And I think that's something I'd like to see. 
Yeah. I love that term magical thinking that exactly it. everyone listening to this podcast. If you're a sales representative, you work in the supply side. If you're a retailer, no more magical thinking. It is not going to help anyone over the next six to 12 months or, or at any time. Really, we need to get very granular and really dial everything in. And I, I see Chad nodding. So I know he agrees with me on that one. Another awesome hour. We just are rolling through. So I want to end it as we always do with specific advice for our listeners. I mean, Fred, we just gave some specific advice to retailers to get people back in the door. Anything else that you had in mind that retailers might want to think about for November? Well, I don't know if this is just for November, but I've had a few days up in the local mountains in a wilderness area hiking. In fact, I'm in a cabin right now. And just a couple of days ago, I was on a trail walking along, you know, in my, my usual modest pace. And there's a young woman with a dog coming up behind me and she's moving a little faster than me. And eventually she passes me and we have a brief conversation. Beautiful day. Oh my gosh, it's mid sixties. Can it be better than this? And she says, yeah, it's great. And so I'm going to go ahead here, but I'm going to have to stop every now and then because my dog is blind. And so her dog is actually blind. She keeps it on the leash and they move up. And so, okay, I'll see you in a little bit. And so, you know, 10 minutes, there they are sitting on a rock and we start chatting again. And then as I'm passing her to go up and be passed again, you know, why I'm being passed by a blind dog and a young woman is another issue. But, and so as I'm moving up the trail, she says, oh, by the way, my name is Brooke. And I said, my name is Fred. Nice to meet you. Well, it struck me because my mind thinks about the bike business a lot. How easy is it to introduce yourself to a customer? How many stores have people that actually do this? Now, she wasn't trying to sell me anything, just being friendly on the trail. And so it, it strikes me the thing that Dan Mann has coached for a long time was try to hire for personality. She wasn't doing anything other than being herself, outgoing, curious, interested, and she said, hi, my name is Brooke. And there she is walking along with a blind dog on a trail being friendly because she can't help it. That's her personality. So as Dan would say, hire for personality. You can train them on the bike stuff later, but you need some people that are very comfortable sticking their hand out and saying, hi, my name is whatever my name is. And that doesn't happen very often when I go into bike shops. They, they don't make it personal. They don't introduce themselves. It's pretty basic. So that just is stuck in my mind. It's like, maybe there's something there. I love that. Jay, where do you think our suppliers should be focused moving into November? Well, to me, I agree with Fred that there's so much has changed in our buying consumer, but relative to the industry, there's an awful lot that hasn't. And I do agree. It's no longer, you know, your father's bike business, but I'm struck by something else that Mark Sani has said several times. And that is that our business has changed from being a relational or relationship business to being a transactional business. And to a great extent, he's correct when you look at the cold, hard facts. But I think what the supply side needs to begin to focus on and think about is what they can do to bring back the whole relational and relationship side of the business. There is, and I think I could say this openly, there's no trust between especially bike retailers and brands anymore. Truly. I've been in this business a long time. 
I come out of the Schwinn organization, the original Schwinn Bicycle Company. And there was a trust, almost a bond, between authorized or franchised Schwinn dealers and the Schwinn Bicycle Company. There was a trust. If we can bring that back, if the supplier community can bring that back, and this is almost like talking about B Corps, but if we can bring back that fundamental trust, that if we can begin to think in terms of this is not a transactional business, this is not a contract, a black and white, this is a relational business. Because your retailers are going to develop relationships to sell your products You've got to realize that part of what you need to do is develop a relationship as a supplier, as a brand, as a manufacturer, as a wholesaler, as a component manufacturer, whatever. You've got to develop a relational kind of connection to those specialty bike retailers because that's where they live. That's what they're all about. That's why they can develop the relationships. So that right now would be my advice. I mean, there's a lot of stuff you look at in the economy, but... And a lot of stuff we've talked about here, but I think right now the real key for specialty bike retailers and especially bike retail channel is the supply side begins to rethink what they've done relative to transactional relationships and move back to relational and relationships, true relationships between themselves and the specialty bike retailers that represent them. Jay, I'm really happy to hear you say that. I agree with that 100%. I think that Corinne from the New Wheel summed up that very well at the shift event on the retailer panel there. And it is what the NBDA is hoping to accomplish with the formation of our retailer supplier best practices panel that will kick off in January to meet quarterly to talk about best practices and how we do indeed grow these relationships and partnerships to be true partnerships to work to strengthen everyone. You know, I'm listening to this conversation and I just realized I think it would be fantastic right now to ask Chad Picard as a past business owner. He's just sold his retail businesses and now P2 program moderator sitting in on the important conversations that we're having with retailers. What are you seeing that would be a good focus for our retailers for November? I think a lot of it is things that we've already said. You know, Fred talked about the gal on the trail and just engaging. Too many times we have customers in our store and we don't truly engage with them and figure out the problem that we're trying to solve. I have a defunct seat post that I've been trying to fix over the last week or so, and I don't necessarily have all the tools, but I called four stores trying to come up with a solution. And I was, when looking for a specific tool, I was left with a no and nothing beyond that, no one asking me, well, what problem am I trying to solve? And that answer could have led to, you know, maybe a clinic where I could come and, and work on it at the store and learn more about the product I'm using. So I'm more comfortable with it. It could have led to a special order that again is revenue. At the very least, it could have led to a relationship that built trust so that I knew I could go back and talk to them when I have the next problem. And so a lot of retailers are moving into a different season. I don't ever want to call it the off season, but it's a time of year where we change our focus. We maybe don't have as many door swings, but it's an opportunity for us to sharpen that axe, dig into sales training, operations, refining what we do and making sure our operations are consistent from one customer to the next. And coming out the other end, the team or the retailer with the most energy is the one that's going to win. When a customer goes into a store, And if the salesperson just says, no, we don't have that, 
that's a completely different set of circumstances than if the salesperson says, oh, where are you riding? Tell me about your ride. Tell me about something you would love to change about your bike or maybe something you'd love to change about your gear. So this is a time to sharpen that axe and focus on what we're going to do with this new customer that's coming in. You know, maybe the customer that picked up a bike three years ago during the pandemic and isn't really sure how to move forward other than just buying the bike. Awesome. Yeah, I didn't tell you I was going to ask you that. Thank you for that. I guess let's wrap it up here. Mike Fritz, e-bike expert, really doing some amazing work, working with New York City, working with the NBDA, working with UL and other certification companies. Mike, what do you think for November? Where should retailers be focused as far as e-bike growth and strategy and safety? I won't reiterate all the advice I've given in the past weeks and months and years and whatnot. But one thought occurs to me, I mean, we're talking about getting more people into the store. I've been obviously very concerned that the whole lithium-ion battery situation is discouraging people from considering an e-bike. The headlines are rife with reports about this fire and that fire, and and it's not just e-bikes. I mean, we still see battery fires associated with home energy storage systems, et cetera, et cetera. If I were an e-bike retailer, I'd start selling safety. I would promote the fact that I carry product that is UL certified. Try to proactively diminish that concern in the minds of people. You know, I I hearken back to my old boss, Lee Iacocca. He was the first auto executive to take the bit and, and start selling safety as a legitimate, important, valuable product attribute. I think we need to proactively nip the concern that customers probably have relative to the dangers of lithium-ion batteries and, you know, basically say, hey, the product that we sell at service complies with applicable safety standards. Please come on in and we can talk about this further. So that said, I just want to mention, in addition to the work that you mentioned that we're doing, Heather, I've applied for membership on another UL technical committee. One of the big topics that we've been talking about lately is safe battery storage and charging containment. There's a new UL committee called UL 1487. It's titled uh, Standards for Battery Containment Enclosures. We hope to be able to ultimately introduce appliances, if you will, for lack of a better term, into the e-bike retail store that will give you an added sense of security associated with having those batteries in your store, you know, and and charging them in, in a safe and protected manner. So we will keep you posted on that. I've also joined a couple of SAE, Society of Automotive Engineers, micromobility battery safety committees that will give us additional insight into what the auto industry is doing relative to electric car battery safety. And I'm hoping I'll be able to distill some some of the practices and procedures and technologies that they're using in electric cars to minimize and mitigate hazards associated with these high energy storage devices. So we'll continue to probe these areas. And as Jay alluded earlier, we're looking closely at new technologies to help the rider in the automotive environment with respect to broadcasting locations and whatnot. So there's a lot going on and all of it speaks well, I think, to the future of electric bikes, both as recreation and transportation modalities. Yeah, such a wealth of information. Can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing your expertise with our listeners so that they are able to stay up to date on important topics facing the industry. Jay, Mike, Fred, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Heather. Yeah, you're welcome. We'll do it again next month for our listeners. Thank you for listening to Bicycle Retail Radio. Hope you got a lot out of today's episode. And with this, we go. Go be great. Thank you for listening to Bicycle Retail Radio. This podcast is designed specifically for the bicycle industry. 
dedicated to strengthening our retailers and cycling community. If it is your first episode, we urge you to take the time and listen to our past episodes. Support the show by first subscribing, then share your favorite episode online with friends. You can go one step further and leave a review. It helps members of our industry find our podcast. Special thanks to NBDA Development Director Rochelle Scouten for editing and promotional graphics. Music provided by Joel Picard.